You're listening to the Oz TV podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome back to the Oz Network as we take a break from our regularly scheduled programming for this week, at least, uh, because we have to bring you a bit of a dream interview for us as uh, all of our regular Amazing Race listeners are anxiously awaiting probably a year and a half long delay on the U.S. season and now that we're only about a week away from what would have been the premiere, the regular premiere date of The Amazing Race Canada, uh, we've got no Amazing Race for who knows how long. But we made some contacts and we pulled something together and we have an interview that uh, when we first started covering The Amazing Race all the way back on our Survivor Oz show way back in the day, I remember us thinking to ourselves, oh, it'd be great to get John Montgomery on, the host of The Amazing Race Canada, and at the time we thought, you know what, it'll it'll probably never happen, but here, we finally made it happen. We have John Montgomery, host of The Amazing Race Canada, also Olympic gold medalist in the skeleton from the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, here today, and just to explain a little bit here, we're we're calling this an interview too big for just one podcast. Now, uh, if anybody's listened to us long enough, they know that myself and Ben and also Jared, uh, we have... Another podcast called Off the Podium, which uh, originally started just as an Olympics filler, uh, so we could talk about the Olympics. We then extended it, did a lot of athlete interviews, uh, and because there's no Olympics this year, as well as Amazing Race, we decided, let's break this John Montgomery interview up. You know, we had uh, more time than we thought we were going to have with John, and uh, we discussed, obviously, the Olympics and Amazing Race, so we're breaking this up into both shows, because this is the first guest that we've really had that's been able to cross over onto both the entertainment side, Oz Network, and then the sports side off the podium. So what you're listening to here today, it was one interview. We recorded only the single interview with John, but what you're going to hear today is, let's call it the uh, Amazing Race Cut. And in this one, you're going to hear all of our talk with him about the Amazing Race, but you're going to get a few bits and pieces here and there about his Olympic career, his sports career. Uh, However, if you were to go over to our sister show, Off the Podium, you're going to hear his full Olympic story and then a little bit more of the Amazing Race. So uh, just slightly tinkering with editing different cuts of this interview uh tailoring to our different audiences on the different shows uh if you want to hear more of olympic stuff you we don't need to do a release the olympics cut for john montgomery just find off the podium you know uh if you search on uh itunes google Podcasts, stitcher wherever you find podcasts or just look us up off the podium on facebook on twitter and uh if nothing else and you want to hear more of this then just message us and we'll send you the link to the off the podium show as well uh so without further ado let's get into it amazing race canada host olympic gold medalist john montgomery john montgomery host of amazing race canada and gold medalist from vancouver olympics and skeleton welcome to both the oz network and off the podium an interview so big we couldn't contain it just to one podcast thanks so much for being here well, it's nice to be welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, I think this is interesting because, you know, you obviously are probably more well-known now for the host of Amazing Race Canada, but, uh, you know, once upon a time, 10 years ago, Vancouver, you were making your Olympics debut in a sport called Skeleton, which might be the single most insane-looking sport on television I've ever seen. Uh, you know, I have to ask, you know, how you got into Skeleton in the first place. Were you big into sports growing up? And then how does somebody who's actually from Manitoba as well get into a sport like Skeleton? Well, optically, I, I, I would have to agree that uh, it does appear that those who are participating in the sport 
are perhaps a bit daft. Uh, I'll, I'll say that about the sport in terms of how it looks. In, in reality, it's pretty controlled. You know, you're going down a serpentine chute that only goes the direction that it goes. There's no left-hand turns. There's no 90-degree rights. You don't have to really uh, decide where you're going. Gravity's going to pull you down that serpentine chute the way that it wants to, but you do have to navigate it efficiently and effectively to be able to, well, of course, get fast times and get down relatively unscathed. Mm. But uh, a boy from Manitoba gets involved through aspirations and inspiration. I aspired to be a Canadian team athlete in something, anything that would have me, and I was inspired by actually witnessing a race live in Calgary. And it wasn't uh, long after the 2002 Winter Olympic Games had just concluded. I saw my homeboy Theo Fleury win a gold medal with the men's hockey team. Mm. I saw Saleh and Pelchian get ripped off in Salt Lake City. <laughs> I saw all this amazingness, like our women's hockey team clutching gold medals. Uh, and I was, I was looking for something, something that might host a guy like me to be able to uh, dream big and see those dreams played out on the world's largest sporting stage that is the Olympics. And uh, I, I recognized skeleton could be a pathway to mm. to that uh, realization and so i i pursued it with everything that i had two things first you know we're we're actually fingers crossed going to have jamie uh, Saleh on our um uh olympics podcast off the podium in a couple of weeks so we're gonna have to let her awesome. know she was an inspiration for john montgomery um big time secondly you know Every athlete we interview on here, I'm always waiting for that answer of, you know, I wanted to be on the biggest stage. I wanted to be an Olympian. And typically you just get, you know what, I fell into this sport and I just turned out to be good at it. So, I mean, you might be the first person we've had on here from any country who said, yeah, I wanted to be an Olympian. (laughs) Well, I think that's how people find themselves in these periphery sports, if you will. The ones that aren't your general conduit, like people grow up skiing and become great skiers people grow up playing hockey and then by virtue of incredible work ethic uh some raw talent um some nurturing in nature they end up at the olympics uh via professional uh, hockey whereas quite often especially in sliding sports uh, we refer to them as post-secondary sports because you are recruited from something else uh, invariably to be able to apply what you used to do a new metric that is uh, something special most people don't do like push a bobsled or learn to drive a skeleton sled Mm -hmm. or a luge sled luge isn't necessarily the same because those usually start out quite young but uh, bobsledders and skeleton athletes you have to be 16 years old most of them get into the sport when they're in their early 20s after university or college and then they continue to uh, chase that Olympic dream so uh, I might be fair in the whole cosmic scheme of uh, Olympics but in the sliding world, I am uh, every bit as normal a creation story as the next guy. About six or seven months ago, I actually I met you briefly in person here because uh, you were here in my hometown, Winnipeg. And uh, like you said, That's your right. home province. Uh, just by freak luck, we had a massive windstorm. And every year when there's the big Christmas tree lighting ceremony, it's outdoors. You know, I've got a three-year-old and twins who are less than a year old. I'm like, there's no way we're going outside. But when I, Oh, my God. Well, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> your condolences. <laughs> Well, uh, you get epic yeah. failure because every day when you're raising children, you're failing constantly, but you hope that your victories as a parent 
uh, add up to be greater than the sum total of your daily losses. But yeah. uh, that's life in a, in a sort of microcosm right there, brother. Yeah, I mean, and victory for me was, yeah, hey, we're moving the Christmas tree lighting ceremony indoors, and hey, John Montgomery is going to yeah. be there. <laughs> so had the opportunity. And, and when you were uh, doing the, the lighting ceremony, you, you told the story about when you first found out that you were making the team. You wanted to share a little bit of that here? True. Well, I remember exactly where I was. Goosebumps right there. You um, you mentioned a part of my history, which is but a memory, and to it is still connected emotion, still connected energy. And when I think about it, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I'm, I'm sitting on the roof of the East Parkade. Uh, I'm not sure which big uh, department store is up on top of that roof. Uh, at any rate, uh, it's one of the entrances to the mall on the east side there on top of the parkade. And I was there when I received a phone call from, at the time, the director of Bobsleigh Canada Skeleton, inquiring as to whether or not I'd like to come to an early driving school. I had previously that winter, this was 2002, um, done a Discover Skeleton class, like I said, one week after the 2002 Winter Olympic Games had just concluded. Mm. And I did four runs that night, never did any more sliding that season. Uh, the ice was gone. It was the end of the season, February 28th. Uh, the, uh, the ice comes out in March or so. And I was thinking all summer long about this sport that I was going to, as far as I was concerned, get involved in. I just didn't know how to get involved. I didn't know the, the pathway. I didn't know the structure, the system. I didn't know anything about it other than I really enjoyed this experience that I'd had doing four runs from two from the middle of the track, from the track and two from the start of Lady Lou's start. And I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was beginning to structure my life. I was beginning to train uh, my lower chain. I was doing only upper body training at that time, trying to look better in a t-shirt, <laughs> bicep uh, curls and bench press, that type of stuff, walking around like a chicken. Uh, that That's, you know, saying that I had a large upper body, which is also a gross overestimation, uh, but you get the picture. I wasn't doing any squats at that time. So I was beginning to try and think about how to engage my lower chain, my glutes, my quads, my core, that kind of stuff, to be this skeleton athlete. And I got this phone call, and that basically changed the trajectory of my life. I said yes. Uh, I didn't know what I was signing up for, but I went to that early talent ID camp. I did get an invite to the early driving school. I did uh, get my license that winter and begin my journey as a skeleton athlete, which was uh, crippling and painful. I was the worst of all the new recruits. Wow. I was getting my ass handed to me on a <laughs> on a daily basis, getting beat down by that track in Calgary. Uh, and it would be two years before I would realize a rate of development within the sport that I could be proud of, happy with, uh, that would motivate me to continue to slide. Because up till that point, it was better. It was essentially uh, battling attrition, and all the athletes were dropping off one by one. I'd say of 20 new recruits that came out with me that first year, I ended up participating in sliding with one or two uh, at the end of our career, and uh, you were basically just hanging on and taking your lumps because it was unlike anything else that we'd ever done in our life up till that point. And I group all of us collectively in that group because if you think about it, how can you have a previous life experience to draw upon to be able to understand what it's like to do skeleton racing, laying in the prone position, experiencing G-forces uh, in excess of five. That's sustained instantaneous G-forces of over 100 Gs when you smash your face into the ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the sustained G-forces of being over five is, is over space shuttle type uh, G-forces. Granted, they sustain that for minutes at a time, but uh, we're just doing it for seconds. At any rate, you can't appreciate this 
force, this dynamic uh, nature of the sport until you actually participate in it. And having watched on a sled uh, doing a virtual demonstration or anything is not like actually practicing. And the only way that you can get better is to, sadly, get beat up in most people's cases. Some find themselves taking to it a little quicker than others. I was not that (laughs) individual. (laughs) But, I mean, you eventually made your way there. I mean, your Olympic debut was in Vancouver, so home soil. I mean, what I think clicked with you, for at least the Canadian public, I mean, A, you know, it was a bit of a drought. I mean, we had some gold medals in that first week there. You know, Alex Bilodeau, obviously the big one, but it was a much slower first week than it was the second week. And then when you win the gold, I think it was your celebration, your 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 excitement for winning, which was really unlike anything, you know, any of the other gold medalists we'd seen had done. You know, it really helped, I guess, you to stand out among the public. And I'm sure that that is part of what led to, you know, whether it was an offer or not for you to join Amazing Race Canada, you know, <laughs> uh, d- did you get a lot of uh, recognition, you know, just for the celebration and for the excitement you experienced when you won? I don't know if it's uh, recognition uh, so much as um, folks appreciated it. And I think that what they could appreciate was they could see themselves in that moment because of the way um, that I reacted, the authenticity perhaps of the moment, the, um, well, the the uh, the cultural perhaps uh, reference of imbibing with uh, with a spirit or a beverage of your choosing in Canada. <laughs> if you drink beer in front of the masses, you're going to endear yourself to Canadians because Canadians love to drink beer mm. and they love to do it in large groups. And so, if you <laughs> put yourself uh, amongst your peers, notably uh, what they are. Uh, I'm an average Joe, and I drink beer like the average Canadian. And now they can perhaps see themselves as rocketing down a mountain face first on a cafeteria tray with rails at 146 <laughs> kilometers per hour while pulling 5G to pressure because they couldn't previously see themselves doing it. Now they can. Hey, look at this dummy. He's just like yeah. me. Hey, I, I could be an Olympic gold medalist. I like this guy. Um, that, I think, is some of the... Uh, the connective tissue mm-hmm. that maybe endeared me to uh, a portion of the Canadian population uh, that otherwise it would have just been another uh, tally for our medal count, but there was something that stood out perhaps uh, with the unbridled nature of uh, an enthusiasm was something that I couldn't ever have expected or hoped to hide, just being sort of a live wire kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did have to apologize to Martins afterwards, and you know, to the day I will always say that celebrating when somebody loses um, isn't a good look. Mm-hmm. It's simply not. And I wish I could have been more stoic, uh, but that's only rhetoric too. I mean, I don't wish anything different. But I, you do owe an apology when you're a little overzealous in celebration when somebody else loses, and I did owe him that. But I wouldn't have changed it, mm-hmm. changed how I was honest in my enthusiasm because. I mean, you got to be real, man. Yeah. Uh, trying to be something you're not is an exercise in futility. And uh, I was happy that day. I owed him an apology because of that celebration. would have been different had I come down and been in first place and kept first place yeah. and, and, and stole and had the race from, you know, beginning to end on lock. But I didn't, I didn't have that race until the very final corner on the very final run. And we did, just for reference purposes, 64 corners. We did that track four times. Uh, there's 16 corners. That's 64 corners. That's two minutes and 23.7 seconds of sliding time. And it came down to eight hundredths of a second. The blink of an eye. The blink of an eye is longer than Crazy. eight hundredths of a second. And after all that six kilometers of track, 
it was about half a stud length that, that separated me from Silver. And the only place I overtook him was in the very final corner, on the very final run, and that corner is called Thunderbird. And I had two Thunderbirds emblazoned on the side of my helmet uh, in uh, indigenous design mm. to pay respects to local legend that says the Thunderbird lives up on top of Blackcomb Mountain. So wherever those energies came from, wherever uh, the good spirit uh, entered, I know it was in the final corner on the final run. So then you transition into Amazing Race Canada, which funny funny story. We had Hal Johnson on the Oz Network uh, to do a recap of Amazing Race last year. He told me about when he first heard the announcement that Amazing Race Canada was happening. He immediately contacted people at CTV and said, "Hey, if you if you need a host, I'm your guy." And they said, "We've already got a host, but why not audition for the show?" So I'm going to assume that you were that host that they already had. Like, were you approached to do the Amazing Race, or is it something that you you kind of sought out? I didn't uh, actually hear who that person was. Who are you speaking of? Hal. Johnson. Oh, Hal Johnson, mm-hmm. right. Um, well, you know what? I didn't, I didn't know that uh, little story. <laughs> um, and I don't know if they had me pegged or not, but they did ask me to audition. Mm-hmm. And I did audition, and maybe that had already come in. But uh, no, I didn't know that Hal had reached out about hosting the show. A couple- but uh, <laughs> that's interesting. We got a couple of listener questions too about the Amazing Race here. One from Mark Doyle. Well, one of the questions that I think most people would have is: I think the thing that differentiated you from other Amazing Race hosts from around the world is that you perform these challenges when you're introducing them. Uh, was that a, like a conscious decision? We want to do something to separate you from Phil, the host of the Amazing Race US version, or is it just you know we got an Olympic athlete? People are going to get on his case if he doesn't do these challenges. Well, I think uh, it was hopeful that I would want to do everything. And that was the differentiator, I think, that they wanted to bring to the host role on the Canadian version as opposed to Phil. And that was an opportunity, I think, that they identified right from the go was Phil didn't do any of these mm-hmm. stunts and challenges, and maybe they could get the Canadian race host to do them. I am not forced to do anything that I don't want to do, and it's really good that we've got this symbiotic relationship between the producers and myself because I wouldn't actually be able to do the show without being able to take advantage of these awesome situations that they're presenting the challengers with or the racers with, because I'd be like, no way I'm just going to talk about this stuff and not do it. You guys doing it, damn it. We're going to slow down production. I'm trying this and whether you capture it or not, it's up to you, but I'm not leaving here until I get to jump. And there's some stuff that gives me great cause for pause. Like I'm scared of heights. I have to always work myself up to jump off the edge of a precipice, but I, uh, I find great value in that. Uh, I like scaring myself. I like building myself up to overcome things that I deem scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great sense of pride in overcoming that stuff. And so, yeah, that was, I think, the impetus to find a guy that would be daft enough to do all these stunts with a smile on his face. Um, they found that person in spades in me. Plus, something that I don't have to act or be put on about, which is my pride in this country. Like I I would talk till the cows come home about how great Canada is, how lucky we are to be Canadian, Uh, you know, till the day that I die. And so I can do this job with my eyes closed on a passion level. Now there's so much that I have to learn in terms of uh, delivery and the nuanced approach to being a host or a presenter, but the passion part, you can't fake passion. Uh, It's there authentically in me 
and it will be there authentically in me. Uh, pride is at the center of everything uh, that I hold near and dear. You have any teams that really surprised you with how well that they did? I mean, I, I would throw one out there. You know, one of your teammates, Melissa Hollingsworth, competed on the race and, you know, had ups and downs. But uh, throughout all the seasons, was there any one team? Do you even know much about the teams going in? Is there anybody where you're like, wow, I did not see you going as far as you did? You know, maybe that just gets edited out in the episode. But anybody who just really shocked you throughout the course of the race? There's people that you find uh, at the end of every season, there's three teams there. And I'm usually, you know, you can usually pick a strong team that has all the makings to be able to get to the final race. And, you know, you're not surprised that you see them there perhaps, but there's always those other ones where everything had to go just so for them to be here. There's undoubtedly stronger teams that were eliminated in front of them. Uh, victims of circumstance, but there's usually one team in the final grouping of three that find themselves there uh, by virtue of just being, I guess, uh, I guess, lucky. Yeah. And you have to, you know, be lucky. You create your own luck in life. Uh, there's a great saying that says, I'm a firm believer in luck, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. And there's that one team that usually applies to. The other ones, you're like, okay, you're here uh, because you are certainly amongst maybe the top four strongest teams. Two of them will find themselves there. But there's usually one back-of-the-pack kind of team that always ends up in the mix for the grand finale. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is put yourself in a position to be successful, to have success. If you can't, first of all, put yourself in a position – to even have a shot, well, then you're not going to have a shot for sure. But if you can just put yourself in that position to be successful on every single leg, every team has to put themselves out there to have an opportunity for success. And most times, another team will count themselves out. So you just can't be last is the sort of uh, common thread amongst the show. And that's what teams who have a good, healthy, uh, balanced approach to the day take uh they don't get overwhelmed when they find themselves trailing at the back of the pack they don't i guess psych themselves out and think that they're out before you know they've even had the chance and so i guess the common thread amongst uh, the teams that do well are the ones that always forge on keep pushing they never count themselves out they've always got a positive attitude and that bleeds into how they deal with each other because communication is the single greatest asset to possess, to achieve. It's not strength. It's not intelligence. It is communication. Uh, two heads is always better than one. Uh, you need somebody to talk you off a ledge sometimes. You need to motivate each other through challenges. You can't do it yourself, and so you need to be able to communicate and motivate. Mm -hmm. And that will, also, that will always be more powerful than simple strength. Uh, than one intelligent individual on a team. Communication trumps all. And attitude, I think, is the uh, harbinger to good communication. If you uh, have a minute or two here, I'd just like to go through a couple of quick-fire questions, maybe some of the listener questions here about Amazing Race. Um, the number one that we have, obviously, is the next season of Amazing Race Canada. Obviously, everything in the world sort of put on hold right now. Uh, but are you coming back for the next season, you know, when it when it does happen? And any word on what it could look like or any plans in the work right now? 
No clue. Uh, <laughs> I show up and I try on some outfits and I say what they tell me to say and I go where they tell me to go. And right now, uh, they haven't told me to show up at any specific time anywhere. So I am in the lurch like everybody else, wondering what, when, where, how, mm-hmm. why. But I do know that Canadians still have uh, an incredible amount of interest in this show. Uh, mm-hmm. Broadcasters, TV, definitely is a massive fan of this show for their network. Uh, Insight Productions, they want to make it. And uh, Disney, who own the franchise, I believe, well, they're still franchising it and putting out licensing agreements. So all those things uh, considered, you can expect another version. Uh, you can expect another season. Just going to have to wait. Yeah. Uh, this is a really interesting one from Kurt Repchill. Um, obviously the last season, you know, we had Dave and Arena who were the big villains and, you know, maybe we'd had like, uh, Holly and Brett on the original season, but no real standout villain team. And whether you love them or hate them, you know, they, they obviously were a big part of that season. Do you think the show with Amazing Race Canada has turned a little bit of a corner now where, you know, we might be seeing more of these villainous teams cast? Well, I don't think you cast anybody as a villain. Um, how they conduct themselves on the show will either paint themselves in a light that Canadians either want to seat themselves or uh, they'll paint themselves in a light um, which isn't reflective of the values that Canadians collectively hold for ourselves. Now, whether those are right or wrong or indifferent, uh, they are perceptions in reality. And... Last year, when I was standing on the mat listening to Dave and Arena speak, I became annoyed at uh, some of the words that they chose to speak, the questions that I was asking. Mm. And when I watched it back, or rather later on in that series, I realized that that was, was me. It was my own, um, I guess, misperception of the words that were chosen to speak. And it was lost in translation mm. almost because of the language divide. Uh, the words that were chosen, I think one question that I asked was, who's your biggest competition? And uh, the way that it was phrased back to me uh, in Bringlish, really, uh, <laughs> which I, I find myself pacing uh, when I get around folks that speak French and English, was that we are our own uh, toughest competition. <laughs> and I internalized that as being egotistical and, and thinking that nobody's better than we are. But in fact, what it was, was amazing psychology being like, no, we can't focus on other people. If we start to think about who's a threat, who isn't a threat, uh, we'll be psyching ourselves out. We are our own biggest threat because of how we perceive things and how, how we choose to communicate with each other. And we can only run our own race and it's up to other people uh, to determine how this shakes out. It's the same kind of thing that I use to insulate myself from uh, ex, uh, external um, factors at the Olympics mm. and forces that I couldn't control. Uh, what was said back to me was incredible psychology, sports psychology, but I internalized it as something different. And when I watched it back on TV, I could see what was rubbing people the wrong way. And to be honest with you, if my wife and I were on that show, we would probably be Dave and Arenas mm. uh, because we would be in people's kitchen banging pots and pans, playing the psychology game. Yeah. Knowing that everybody's their own worst enemy. And if we can F with you on a level of psychology, like that's going to 
that's going to stick with them. They're going to be thinking about this tonight. That is totally going to detract from their ability to do, you know, uh, challenges that will give us an edge. And my wife and I probably would have been every bit as bad, you know, stroking off names, uh, being a bit, you know, looking for reactions mm-hmm. uh, out of people. And that's what those little digs were. Just pick, pick, pick. You keep picking yeah. at a scab. Pick, pick, pick. And that thing is going to bleed before long. And it'll start oozing and festering and get infected. And then you got to cut the whole limb off. <laughs> uh, we would have been pickers. And uh, we would have been picking away at, uh, at people and trying to get under skin and get in people's kitchens. And uh, so we, we took great delight in people's uh, sort of coming undone at Dave and Arena's, uh, <laughs> you know, psychological warfare psychological warfare mm-hmm. the, the for English so yeah whether whether or not uh, people you, you can't cast that you can't find somebody that you know oh, here's the villain uh, but people will uh, based on their choices either do the things that could be cast in that light and it's all again in editing too it's like what do you want to show of these people because there is reams of footage to support this narrative mm-hmm. and there is reams of footage to you know uh, that isn't supportive of this type of a narrative. And so it, it, it's how the editing goes, but you can't edit in people, you know, being somewhat, uh, I don't know, what's pernicious mean? <laughs> <laughs> using, a, using a word that I don't even know. <laughs> uh, being, uh, you can't say dickish, I guess, maybe on the podcast, but that's sort of... Oh, go for it. Uh, <laughs> you just yeah, did. Yeah, uh, being somewhat dickish, yeah. <laughs> uh, one last question, which I think you almost half answered there. Uh, if you were to go on the race, who would your partner be, and do you actually think you could win? Based on how my wife and I navigate poorly, no. Honestly, <laughs> we couldn't win based on poor navigation skills. Um, we fight well, though, and that's, got, that's a skill that needs to be employed. Uh, because if you're, you're biting your tongue constantly, uh, you can't, you know, you can't get energy out. You can't move forward quickly enough. Uh, and so my wife and I, we fight well. We would, uh, be volatile, uh, but we would make up quickly and, uh, use our words constructively, uh, to build each other back up and move forward collectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fighting well is one of those things that we would have, but geographically, our ability to navigate would be somewhat compromised <laughs> and I think that would be our undoing so I guess Dish my wife she's my partner and no we wouldn't win because we suck at navigation <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be most people's downfall to be honest <laughs> yeah yeah I do do uh, just before we go, I just wanted to tell you, you know, obviously we've been talking about you for a couple of years on multiple podcasts here and literally right behind my corner, I will send you a picture when we're done. I have an autograph painting that I bought off of some sports trader. I'd gone in to get a Doug Gilmore rookie card and I see this giant autograph painting of John Montgomery from the Olympics signed right behind no. me. So it's, it's there. No, <laughs> dude, you got to go back for that Dougie Gilmore rookie card. I got both. Uh, I will say I got both. <laughs> Okay, you. I'm I'm happy about that. You're you're in the same league as Doug Gilmore, at least they're up there. Uh, well, don't say that. Dougie is uh, he's my childhood hero. My oh. mom's last name is Gilmore, so I used to go around telling people that Doug was my uncle, and of course nobody <laughs> believed me, but I I just would tell them that anyway. But I have a quick funny story about that. I was in uh, in Hamilton doing an event, and I got up, and earlier that night I signed a 
it was a well done piece of art made out of um, clay of a mold of me carrying a pitcher of beer. And so I signed this about 30 centimeter tall clay figurine of me holding a pitcher of beer. And I was like, this is awesome. Somebody spent a month or so, and they said it took 30 days to craft this thing. And they had to look at my picture every day, this poor soul. <laughs> uh, and so later on that night, I was auctioning it off live at this event. And I couldn't really see past the bright lights. And what happened was I ended up selling up to a person in the audience who was Doug Gilmore. He gave it wow. to me that night, and I had signed it earlier, and I said, well, this is incomplete without a Doug Gilmore signature on it. So <laughs> Doug Gilmore bought me and gave me myself. Uh, nice. But I got his autograph on it, and so now I have a picture of me with my signature and Dougie's on it, and uh, and I and I treasure that thing. So, yeah. Well, hey, you send me a picture. Not because it's me, but because uh, <laughs> it was because Gilmore. Dougie's signature, not because it's me. <laughs> Hey, look, we have the same childhood hero. You send me a picture of that, I will send you a picture of my Doug Gilmore card in front of my painting of you. Done deal. <laughs> All right, John, we're so glad to finally have you on here, and uh, we look forward to hearing you uh, maybe call some Olympics in 2022, possibly down the yeah, road. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, yeah, I'm not sure. I went to Pyeongchang mm-hmm. and really enjoyed myself. Uh, the other side of the... The coin being a broadcaster for the Olympics was was awesome. I will say, though, that being over there for those two weeks, um, really by myself and probably without knowing it, really mourning the, the I guess, the transition. I won't say loss. I won't say anything of the sort other than transitioning from athlete Mm-hmm. to uh, to broadcaster to regular life to you know to not being an athlete was uh, it was depressing uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I swear like for the first time in my life I think I know what depression felt like and it was at the Olympics and it was in Pyeongchang and you were watching all this amazing success the trials and tribulations of athletes unfolding but I think I was mourning the loss or mourning the transition of my uh, my life moving from athlete to uh, to broadcaster and so it was this uh, really interesting conflicting time in my life so who knows whether or not i'll find myself in beijing but the experience itself of broadcasting of being a part of the olympics that it from a different perspective was really rewarding mm. and fascinating and at that same moment somewhat depressing i will for sure be over it uh, by the time <laughs> beijing rolls around no doubt about it i don't think i'll still be mourning that loss but whenever you find yourself in a moment like that you you reflect back to a period in your life which had such meaning. And while the meaning of tobogganing is really vapid and uh, the, 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 I guess, aspiration to find out what you can do physically is really self-serving and really selfish, mm-hmm. there's a lot of depth to it in terms of fulfillment uh, through the journey. And while the reasons might not be grandiose or, or super enlightening, there is a lot of uh, depth there in terms of meaning. And, the, and when you step away from that, trying to find that same level of connectedness to the purpose uh, is what I think lots of athletes struggle with. Mm. And, uh, and I'll have moved on from that by 2022, no doubt. But uh, I'm sure if I find myself in Beijing it will be without that uh, bit of depression that I experienced uh, at the 2018 game. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure between Amazing Race Canada and Beijing, we're going to have you all over the TV on CBC TV. You just need to check off a few more networks, and you're going to be the man on all TV in Canada. 
well, why don't we do some of the other ones? CBC, we'll make it there. And uh, CTV, I don't know. Where else can we, what else could we be seeing on here? Uh, Netflix, how about Prime? Yeah. Uh, over the top <laughs> providers. Uh, global, we're going to get on global. You are going to be sick of Monty. Uh, but I, I think Monty in small doses is the, is the right amount. We don't need anything too Monty eyes because, well, sometimes uh, you, small doses, right? Small doses. <laughs> Absolutely, and thanks so much for joining us on both shows here today, John. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys reaching out. Huge thanks to John Montgomery for uh, doing this interview with us. And uh, as I said earlier, you want to hear more about the Olympic side of things. There are several extra minutes that we were able to talk to him about um, his lead up to his gold medal and uh, getting into the sport that you can listen to over on Off the Podium. Uh, But that's probably going to be it for us for Amazing Race for a little while. Actually, I guess on that note, if people do follow our Amazing Race coverage, we are putting together a couple of fun little side episodes that we're going to be doing. Um, We do have some interviews with contestants that we've been sort of putting on hold for a couple of years. Maybe we'll reach out to them and see if uh, we can line that up. But otherwise, a couple little fun side projects, things just discussing past seasons that we're going to be having coming up. All of our regular coverage is still going, which our regular coverage right now, I guess, is technically just our regular movie recaps. Uh, This week, we are finishing up Anniversary Month with the 20th anniversary of The Replacements with Keanu Reeves, which is going to be incredible because I absolutely love that movie. Right now, if you're tuning in, this is normally when we uh, do our weekly recaps on Total Drama Island, the Canadian reality animated parody, whatever it is. Uh, You can go back and listen to the first 19 episodes that we've covered up until here. Uh, But the coverage for Total Drama Island is going to be on hold for just a couple of weeks, just as we get caught up all the way leading up to the end of the season. So you can just listen through all the episodes going straight into that. Other than that, Ben's been doing some interviews. Uh, He had one this week with an actress from the TV show Third Watch, which, of course, he covered the entire series on that. Uh, Eva LaRue, so you can listen to that interview as well if you're a Third Watch fan or if you look through filmography and see anything else that's of interest to you. But otherwise, just wait and see what else we have coming up. Uh, More interviews, more TV coverage, more movie coverage. Uh, We're getting into Rene Russo month next month for movies, which is going to be very exciting. And again, if you have any uh, issues finding the second part of this interview, the second cut of this interview for the Olympic stuff with John Montgomery, uh, feel free to send us a message. Otherwise, it will come off the podium on wherever you find your podcasts. And until next time, my name is Colin, and I'm team number one. Thanks for downloading this episode from the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as find out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at the oznetwork.net. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll speak to you next time.